Hello everyone, my name is Mohit Gamble from the Permaculture Education Institute and welcome to the third of this special four-part localization series on Sense Making in a Changing World podcast. I'm here with internationally acclaimed localization activist Helena Norberg-Hodge. Helena is the founder and director of Local Futures, an international non-profit organization dedicated to renewing ecological and social well-being by strengthening communities and local economies worldwide. Helena's first book, Ancient Futures, which had a huge impact on me, has been translated into 40 languages and sold over 1 million copies. She's been the subject of hundreds of articles and written many books, including her latest book, Local is Our Future, Steps to an Economics of Happiness, which accompanies her award-winning documentary, also called The Economics of Happiness. Helena's work spans almost five decades with support and collaboration with leading ecological thinkers. She's been the recipient of the Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Peace Prize, and also the Goy Peace Prize. I first met Helena back in 1992 at Schumacher College in England and was absolutely inspired by the work that she was doing and subsequently volunteered with her in Ladakh or Little Tibet. In the first two parts of this podcast series, we talked about the global economy and localising our food system. Here in the third part, we're going to dive into a discussion about the central role of community and ecology. Creating the change we want and need to see in the world cannot be done alone. It's indeed a community-based activity. And drawing on her experience of working with Indigenous communities around the world, Helena shares with us the vital role of reconnecting with community and ecology, with people and place. Our fourth fourth and final conversation will focus on big picture activism and where to from here. So grab your notebook again, listen in with friends, follow up by watching Helena's films and reading her books and delving into her study group materials and localization action guide. And also feel free to share this widely. Remember, this series is available as both an audio and video podcast, and you can find the links to the show notes and also all Helena's materials below. And before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of land in which I'm meeting with you today. I'm here on the unceded lands of the Gubby Gubby people on the banks of the Mookaboola River, and I'd like to pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. So sit back and enjoy, and thank you so much for being here as part of this special series of conversations with Helena Norberg-Hodge. Well, thanks so much for joining me again, Helena. This is the third part of our conversation. We started talking about big picture, like the global economy, then we moved into um, food systems change. And this session, uh, we're going to unpack um, ideas around community and place. And then the last session um, is around looking at um, education, leadership and, and activism. So I think starting this conversation around community, maybe we could just explore a little bit about what do you see community is? I mean, this is a huge question, but is there something that you, where did you first become aware about the power of community? Like, did you grow up in a really strong community or was there a certain point when, oh, hang on a tick, this is where community, why community is so important? Yeah, I would say that I grew up in Sweden, but I also lived in America as a young woman. And I remember reflecting on and trying to understand why there seemed to be much more, well, certainly much more violence and dissatisfaction ambition, sort of negative societal traits in America. And that did 
get me thinking about community in the sense of a more settled existence. I remember then learning that the average American, this was in the 60s, 70s, the average American growing up was moving seven times. And it was clear that this was rupturing the connection to grandparents, to cousins, to also to neighbors, to people who would be more of a constant support and uh, community, community fabric. Later on, as we've talked about before, you know, I went out to Ladakh or Little Tibet and discovered there, you know, the absolutely most radiantly happy people I'd ever encountered. And over the years, in speaking their language fluently and living with them, I became aware of how fundamental this fabric of community is. Now, what that means for me now is that the, um, when you have strong community, meaning strong connections between people who are not necessarily related, that has been part of the fabric of interdependence, of human scale interdependence, actually, to a great extent, economic interdependence. People have lived in ways where they depended on each other, they supported each other, they would help each other out at harvest time, building houses. And we often hear, you know, that it takes a village to raise a child. And I discovered that it takes a village to do everything well from building a house to uh, weeding, to harvesting, to, yes, growing children. What I also discovered was that the really healthy community fabric meant that within that, the extended family was an essential and vital component, and that this functioned, again, in a practical way. So, I experienced the incredible benefit of mothers and parents generally having roughly 10 caretakers for every child, 24-7. And that created this remarkable, um, relaxed sense of being heard, seen, loved for the children. And so, I came to understand, it took actually many years to really see this all clearly, but I came to understand that this uh, loving fabric, which wasn't, oh, I love you, I love you, and you were so wonderful. It was just that people were there, people, you know, the baby who might be a bit ill or something, or even if not, was on somebody's body the whole time. Just that alone was helping to grow children that were very calm, very, um, what we would say in some ways, not needy, because the need to be loved and accepted and cared for and carried, that's so fundamental, was met. So I would argue, you know, that one of the most important things we need to learn is that the dissolution, the fragmentation of the community fabric, which was essentially the local economy fabric of people interdependent with each other, was also the dissolution of this extended family. And then that 
created the foundations of insecure, neurotic people who were easily manipulated by top-down forces into an idea of a nationalist identity and we are better than they are and we're going to go to war over this. That breakdown of the community fabric has been fundamental to creating, as I say, insecure people who are then more easily manipulated, but also creating people who are so much less happy and who have this constant need to prove themselves. And that proving has been you know, created within the context of an economic system that basically pit us against one another. And so from the advent of modern schooling, where children were suddenly put into these sort of factories uh, to be, um, you know, segregated into monoculture. So every child in the room the same age already is like a knife that cuts through a collaborative framework. Can I stop for a second? I'm worried that I might have said all this before in this podcast. Not- uh, no, no, because... Uh- You've mentioned different aspects, but bringing it together, that was that was just really perfect, you know. It, okay, so I haven't talked so much about that. No. Okay. I know it's hard when you talk so much about so many things. Like, oh, did I say that? <laughs> and also because it's all interconnected, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. we're talking about. Uh, yeah. So, um no, that was that okay, was I'll continue really so. powerful. You know, it's a really powerful insight into yeah, where so many different things are going wrong. Um, yeah. And and so I guess maybe if I could pick up from there and ask you about the um, the connectedness to place. Then, so you've talked about that interconnectedness between people and communities and the local economy, and and you talked you mentioned before about moving. Yeah. If you don't mind, maybe can you say that later? I just want to say a bit more about that. Oh, okay. Yep, go ahead. Yep. So I'll continue. I think you, you won't need to edit because I... I'll just... Yeah. So, so in this schoolroom where suddenly everybody's exactly the same age, what happens is that a child who can't run as fast as another child feels inadequate, feels inferior. A child that's say one or two years old in the kindergarten or something, can't even think of reaching out a hand to help another child. It's physically impossible. So in this sort of prison-like segregation into monoculture, we're breeding unhealthy relationships that are based on competition, insecurity, feeling left behind, And I I came to realize, you know, as I would go back and forth between Ladakh and the West, how horrific it was to do this to children while you simultaneously put in the message that if you want to feel loved and connected, you've got to have the best running shoes, you've got to be looking like this, you've got to be very beautiful. And later on in life, you've got to have that fancy car, you've got to be important. So we have basically an economic system that has been dividing us and seeing the opposite of that, seeing how people function when they lived in this truly more collaborative, human scale, 
way, I also came to realize that, of course, their life had not been so shaped by technologies that in many cases have actually served to separate us. Because again, they've been introduced into this competitive way of living. And so people are running faster and faster, competing with each other. When you have a situation where neither the economic forces nor the technology nor the ideas about who you're supposed to be were present, I came to see that people naturally enjoy living in a way that is more collaborative. It is so obviously a way of living that goes with the grain, the grain of what children need. Now, it turns out that equally important was that it's the grain of what we need as we age. So there was just this beautiful symbiosis between the oldest and the youngest. And, and I suppose, you know, more than anything for me, that is, you know, it says it all that as you're 80, 90 years old, you are so appreciated, you are so needed because you're a constant presence for the youngsters. And what it means for the parents who usually, as they're you know, really active in the economic sphere, in this case, it was mainly farming, but it was also building houses. And some people were doctors and some were musicians. And so as they were sort of active to have the elders doing so much of the childcare and being that constant presence for the youngest was such a gift and of course, all of it operated at a pace that I would call an ecological pace, a pace of nature, a pace of life. And so, you know, what I'm arguing is that it takes time to love. It takes time to know the, the child and to know the elder well enough to have the genuine love and care and to feel loved and cared for, just as it takes time to understand that that particular tree in your garden hasn't grown as fast as the one that's right next to it, and it might have had a little more sunshine, but it's a bit of a mystery how each and every living thing is unique and different. And so what I'm, what, you know, my work is about a sort of plea for us to wake up to the multiple gifts of slowing down and scaling down and how all of us would benefit so much in terms of our happiness, in terms of our health and the health of everything that lives, the health of the planet. Mm. I wonder um, if you could just share a little bit about your experience and what you heard the women say, because I know you organised reality tours where um, women from Ladakh, you took them to various places in the West. And what did they, what did they say when they saw, you know, old, old people's homes and, you know, the separation that you are describing? Yeah, I should also explain that these reality tours were done you know, in order to help these people to see that this advertised consumer culture, this urban culture that looked like it was so amazing, wasn't actually that amazing. And again, it was so important for them to know that so that they didn't develop this sense of inferiority. 
which is what was happening. That people were beginning to think, oh, wow, we're backward, we're poor, we're nobody, and particularly the youngsters. So bringing people to the West to see with their own eyes that here were these people who were actually striving to find a way of life that was more community-based. They actually were beginning to appreciate getting their hands dirty, working with growing food and farming. It was a big, big message. And equally to see old people's homes, to realize that people lived in a way that even in an apartment, where people lived on top of each other. They didn't know each other's names. They didn't say hello. And so when they went back to Ladakh, they would spread word that this way of life that looks so amazing, actually people are lonely, people are actually much less happy than we are. And they would even comment on things like, you know, we were staying with people and just a few people were going to come and stay the night and it was such a big palaver, you know. We have big enough houses that people come to visit us, you know, it happens all the time, it's not a big deal. And they commented also on the lack of time, you know, the time pressures. And, and you know, basically the message was, we shouldn't think of ourselves as poor and backward. In many ways, people in the West actually emulate or try to emulate and look up to so many of the things that we that we do. So you were there in Ladakh in a time where there was massive changes happening and you probably saw things like the introduction of television and all these consumer forces. And so it was that was that sort of the directly like this exposure, was that the direct part of the unraveling or was there was I guess many things. It's like the introduction of consumer society, the change in the economic system. But what did you see were the key points that unraveled that fabric? Yeah. So well, strong. And how and why how did it unravel when it was so strong? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's so many people ask that, you know, when people had these strong bonds, they were so happy, they were quite healthy. There was no unemployment, you know, why would they abandon it? And most Westerners take that to mean that it wasn't actually that good. And that's partly also because most Westerners have never experienced a relatively small scale community that was happy. Because most of us, when we've gone to the sort of backwater of a small town in a rural area where people farm, or, what we're seeing is people who have been left behind, who've been told they're stupid and backward because everything has gone to the city and it's the smart and the clever people. And even within the West, people who are living closer to the land are seen as backward and stupid. So now that psychological pressure then has engendered a situation where those people aren't very happy and don't have much self-respect. And so they're also often quite intolerant and in some ways small-minded. I don't want to say always, but that's very often the experience that people have had. And so then by contrast, they see in the big cities, the multiculturalism, and they see not only less prejudice, but really embracing people of different nationalities and religions. That's where most of the art and the culture and the power is, the money. Mm -hmm. Even if you're an activist, 
you sort of need to be in the center of things, you know, to raise the money and to be visible. So the the rural and the smaller have been, you know, left behind as this backwater. What I saw in Ladakh in terms of what unraveled, what was actually a very strong fabric, was I would say, you know, the key mechanisms were schooling, bringing in schools that essentially taught people that their language, their knowledge, their history, their clothing, you know, everything about them was backward. So even in the school books, children would be reading, you know, age five or six. You know, we must do everything we can to get these illiterate farmers out of the villages. They'd be reading things that in black and white said that they were left behind and stupid. Then you had the advent of advertising. So even before television came, there were already big effects. And they were through advertising on the radio and some of it in writing. And also government policy and government experts, the experts coming up on the radio every day telling them that their form of agriculture was just not good enough. They needed to have the chemical fertilizers, the chemical pesticides, the even DDT that had been outlawed elsewhere was being brought in. And then you had the medical experts coming up and telling people, well, you have no health care. Even though they did have a health system that was actually a mixture of Chinese and Ayurveda or Indian, they even had medical books that went back more than a thousand years. And it's not to say that it was perfect, but it's certainly to say that it was a medical system and they had a lot of valuable knowledge and particularly knowledge of what herbs and remedies could be used in this particular climate with the particular illnesses that people got, you know, there. So that location-specific knowledge was completely ignored and new hospitals brought in. The experts were also telling women, oh, you mustn't give birth at home. No, no, you've got to be very careful because your hips are so narrow. You need to have cesareans. And, you know, the truth is that it was very rare that women died in childbirth. Very, very rare. And so these are some of the ideas that came in. And then tourism supported all this because you'd have tourists coming in. And in one day, they would spend something like what I used to talk about Martians might do if they landed suddenly in America or Sweden, flying in and then every day spending $100. And $100 in the Ladakh economy was roughly the equivalent of Martians coming to the West and spending about $100,000 a day. So no wonder the young people in Ladakh started thinking, what? My parents are telling me I should be out there in the field getting my hands dirty. These people, they don't work. They don't work. They just sit at a desk and push a few buttons, and then they have 100,000 a year. You know, this is 100,000 a day to spend. So this is, you know, ridiculous to follow. 
And then, of course, later on, television came. But those were all very strong influences on the minds, particularly of the young. And I saw that even by the age of four or five, that input had a very strong effect. Mm. It's such a powerful thing, isn't it? Once you get in your mind at that young age that that is something to leave behind and this is something to go forward, it's such a powerful narrative. So I, I guess the question is, you know, really about how do we start to to weave a new narrative around this. And this is, you know, a lot of what you're talking about with relocalization and, um, you know, bringing the economy back home and slowing down. Where, where do you think the key points of this new story is that will bring people back into an awareness of this? Well, I guess I've always felt that one of the strongest points could be happiness, you know, and that's why the name of our film is The Economics of Happiness, and testimonies from people like me that in turn, you know, we're linking also to some of the latest uh, discovery about what makes us happy, Uh, and people like Johan Hari, who wrote the book Lost Connections, you know, someone who reports about a lifetime of suffering from depression, and being put on all these drugs and, and discovering that actually it was this separation from others that was so fundamental. Now, what I discovered in Ladakh and what's being discovered in the West is that the connection to others is absolutely fundamental, particularly for young children, the number one thing. But equally important is the connection to place, to nature, to life, is that deep, ongoing connection to the plants, to the animals, and particularly when those are the plants and the animals on which you depend. So there's actually a reciprocal relationship. You know, you're good to the animals, you're good to the plants, and in turn, you benefit from it. So that reciprocity with the land is very important. And I'd like to stress that I'm a great believer in farm animals, uh, domesticated farm animals, as being a really important part of us developing those deep relationships with other species that I believe are fundamental for well-being and for the wisdom of respecting all of life. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also was fundamental in creating a lack of the fear of death, which I often describe as the fear of life because we've ended up so shielded from the living world that we have bought into a worldview of permanence, of static, separate entities that relate to each other in this separate, competitive way. And this fear of change is actually a fear of life. When you're living closely connected to life and so for young children to actually see animals dying, even animals being slaughtered and seeing them growing up and helping to look after them, coming in contact with the whole turning of life, of life and death, um, I see as fundamental in creating fearless, secure people who are able to live in the here and now. Mm -hmm. In a way, 
the localization is the practical structural way of implementing the wisdom teachings about living in the here and now, living in the present, and, and not allowing our left brain to be so preoccupied with the future and to be so fearful of change that we then end up, well, you know, constantly searching, constantly unhappy. So, um, yeah, that, that connection to nature is ultimately of vital importance. But I do want to stress that I feel that in the West today, there is not enough emphasis on the interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And as we become more ecologically aware, and even as we become interested in indigenous culture, we should be striving to learn from those indigenous cultures when they were functioning and healthy. In many cases, we have to go back before colonialism. Uh, But there are plenty of books that would substantiate what I'm saying, plenty of, you know, there is the evidence out there. Uh, Interestingly enough, often those books were written by the white explorers but there were many of them and many of them lived long enough in this indigenous culture to develop deep respect and love for them. In fact, I would like to tell you that in Ladakh, you know, where I arrived in the mid-70s, the anthropologists who were coming in after that period too, they used to criticize me heavily for romanticizing traditional life. And they would say, oh, you know, the status of women is not that high and these people are not that happy. And anyway, yeah, they do reciprocate, but they have this pressure towards, you know, reciprocating. And so it's not really all that good. Mm. And it was very interesting to me that the people who would substantiate what I was saying were missionaries, even missionaries who had been out there a hundred years earlier would come out with the explicit goal of improving these dirty backward people who were clearly primitive and they needed Christianity. And these missionaries who wrote books about Ladakh, they didn't change their thinking that they needed to be Christian, but they certainly in elaborate detail described the happiest people they'd ever encountered, the most peaceful, the high status of women, how honest people were, you know, on and on. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's it's very frightening that in the modern era, first of all, there's been so much change in the world. So that's made it more difficult to have clarity about the issues I'm trying to share. But also that even people who came almost at the same point that I did, they often didn't speak the language. They didn't live there long enough. But also what I realized was many of them would come out as tourists. They would fall in love with Ladakh. They just loved it. And they would go back and, and develop, you know, the, you know, the opportunity to do a thesis on Ladakh or to come out as architects or whatever to do something because they loved it so much. But then it was the process of study that meant that they were putting on these lenses where they were actually contrasting what they saw in Ladakh with some kind of abstract idea. And they never specifically said that, 
But in effect, what they ended up doing was making it look inferior to the Western model because the Western model, which was spreading all across the world, needed to be questioned. And we needed to help protect people from the onslaught. But these, most of these anthropologists didn't do that. Mm. So we talked just a moment ago about connecting, <clears throat> excuse me, connecting to, to land, connecting to nature. One thing that, like a little bit more nuanced than that, I wonder how much this connection with not just any nature that you find around, but actually your place and how much that you see. Like I know that's really important for um, Indigenous Australians. It's, you know, they're on country and deeply from a place. Uh, So part of this community narrative of relocalising, how do we, how do we, tackle that question when we are mostly so displaced from our original place of origin. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, definitely. And I I do also want to say that sometimes using the language of place allows people to emphasise the the sort of fossil fuel-based city place and to relegate that to the same status as nature. So uh, a lot of the emphasis in the localization movement on place is often supporting a more corporate uh, propaganda, which right now, by the way, we should all be aware that after COVID in particular, there's a lot of propaganda saying that we're all going to be living in these local cities. We'll have everything we need in walking distance. And it'll be AI that's going to make it possible, lots of renewable energy, rewilding around the city, and then robots doing the farming. So we've got to all be very alert to, uh, I may have said this before, but it's really worth repeating that we've got to be alert to understanding a type of propaganda that almost comes out of algorithms to support a fundamentally urbanizing direction that is linked to global corporations that are creating dependence worldwide on them so that they don't want us dependent on our own country, on our own resources, because then they won't extract all that wealth. And it's not even, as I say, conscious. I think algorithms are helping. But... Yes, to come back to place as you mean it, that we're not just talking about nature in some vague way, but we're talking about the place where you live, the place that, as I said, that is land that supports you, that is, in in the case of Ladakh, I mean, people's names were connected to the house and land that they belonged to. So they were basically named by that place. That's how you identify them. And and then things went out in concentric circles. So you were known as the, you know, the house with the the apricot tree or whatever the name might be of the house. The house with the apes. So this is, you know, Sonam from the house with the apricot tree. That would be within the village and the region. But then when outside from there, they'd be known as Sonam from the village that has many apricot trees. There actually is a village called that. Uh, and when you're outside, even 
that, you know, you'd be outside of Ladakh, you know, then you're known as a Ladakhi. So you had these sort of concentric circles of identity related to place, related to the place you came from. Now, I worry about when I say that, that for Westerners, this could sound like some kind of prison, like you can never leave and that, you know, if you belong to that house with the apricot tree, you're forever condemned to live there. But it's not like that. And in the modern world, there's no need at all what we should think of place-based ways of living and particularly, again, place-based economies as being some kind of prison. It's just that if you imagine that people all around the world would have the right to live that way, and the main thing preventing it is our idea Mm -hmm. of what money is, it's our ideas that prevent us from seeing that we're all being ripped off, we're all being pushed to run faster and faster just to stay in place or even go backwards. I mean, look now after COVID with homelessness and housing prices, why? Why is this happening? You know, why is there unemployment and the housing price entirely? Because we're going along with the edicts of economic policies implemented by left and right. Mm. And what I'm laying out when I talk about global to local is a clarity of how and why this is happening. This is, you know, the tragedy is that people are still locked into left or right. So they think the only choice is that you have a government that's a bit more benevolent and that will hand out some dole out, you know, dole money out to people who just somehow can't work properly. Uh, or you have this machine-like growth. Well, no, this is understanding the economic drivers from a deeper perspective and understanding human needs from a deeper perspective. And so, yeah. Once you see that, it becomes so clear, you know, that the planet, even as crowded as it is, could almost certainly provide, it could could certainly provide better for the entire global population than it is now, vastly better. Mm. Could potentially provide for every single person, you know, nearly 8 billion, in a really elegant, beautiful way with adequate food, more than, more than adequate food, beautiful shelter and healthy food, you know, and meaningful productive work. But we just have to... I think you touched on something that I think is a real limitation to why people aren't choosing what you just described, and that is this notion of freedom and independence to choose and that you know, by being in the city and having the opportunities, you're not trapped, you know, this word of being trapped. So I think, you know, in our minds, we have this sense that that kind of community is is a limitation on our individuality. Like, I wonder whether that's something that you've, you know, um, explored. Well, absolutely, I'm afraid I've explored everything. <laughs> I'm such a know-it-all about everything. But no, yeah, because that was so striking. Again, that when children grow up in a situation where people are there to see them for who they are 
and when they clearly have that love and support, they are genuinely individual. They are able to be themselves and still feel loved. And the scary thing in the modern system now is that we are, I would argue, I don't think I know a single Westerner who hasn't been damaged by this system where we're all feeling neurotically afraid that we won't be loved for who we really are and that we behave, you know, in a certain way in the nuclear family. But that's the only place people really know us where we really are. And then we're out and we have to be a type of perfection. And, oh, no, our children never have tantrums and we don't argue and we don't have any eating disorders or any depression or any anxiety. No, no, no. We're not allowed to show that most of us, because of the system, are suffering in multitude of ways and have hang-ups that, you know, we would all benefit from basically being coming together to share our deepest fears, our deepest anxieties. And, and that's also, I meant to say earlier, also with Johan Hari and the uh, uh, sort of world now where depression and anxiety are just absolute uh, epi epidemics of them, that the clear therapies that work are about coming together in circle and sharing stories from a deep, honest way. And it needs to be helped and, and needs to be with people who are really willing to do so and willing to share that from their side. Uh, people, either it's curated through therapies or if it's done just in, among friends, it needs to be done with like-minded people who are mature enough to hold that uh, truth and be respectful of it. But it's really, I just see again and again that most Westerners are so afraid of that, so afraid. Um, and, and this is because we do not have genuine individualism, because we do not have the sense that we're going to be loved for who we really are as unique individuals. And so it's tragic that, yeah, that's a typical you know, sort of urban scene seems to offer us that freedom when actually in the typical urban scene, people feel more lonely than anywhere else. I know I certainly did. You know, I was living in Paris as a young woman. I loved the city and everything. But I remembered back after Ladakh that how nervous I was if I didn't have social things and engagements for the weekend and how lonely it could feel when your life wasn't full of, of these rather transient and brief social encounters. And, and that, you know, we should think about the perversity of being crowded on top of each other in cities and not even looking each other in the eye and saying hello. Mm -hmm. I mean, no idea. Whereas in smaller communities, slower pace and so on, people do look each other in the eye and say hello. And... Yeah, and the more secure they are, the more place-based they are, the more likely they are to do that. It's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more that could be said about it, but it's, it's really... And I, I feel it because, I, you know, I, I grew up in the city, I grew up in the suburbs, but I grew up in a part of a suburb that was a community in and of itself. I knew everyone up and down the street. There was no fences. We would run from backyard to backyard. There was, And I, I now live in, in an eco-village and I'm watching my children 
raised in this way that they know everyone, that there's a sense of freedom here, that they feel safe. And even when we go to the local town, that we can go up and down the street, people know who they are. They, And, you know, I, and then I see them when I take them to the city, they're still looking people in the eye and smiling at people and like this, I mean, that person didn't smile at me. It's like, yes, I know, darling. There's too many people to smile at. It's like, but we try and still maintain that level of, of contact and, and openness. But I guess, you know, the question that I was wanting to ask here is that when we have a situation where we have most of the people in countries like Australia, for example, where we both are living in urban areas, how do we transition to this, like we can do it, you and me. We're in rural areas. That's regional towns. No, but I think you know it's interesting. Also, when you say cities in Australia, they are quite unusual because you have these suburbs that are relatively green and with a gland. And our friend David Holmgren is, you know, providing very, very, very good advice about what you could do in those suburbs by essentially turning away from the the pressures that we have all been under to go along with being dependent on this centralized, top-down, fossil fuel-based, global economic structure to turn to each other and to the land and just essentially to localize even within those cities. Now, particularly in Australia, where so many of them are suburbs where there is land available and so on. It's actually relatively easy. There are also things happening even in cities where there's not very much land available. But even there, when people start to do co-housing or start projects that are very consciously about reconnecting with local people and not not just by going out standing in the street saying hello to every anonymous person who comes past, but actually building human-scale interdependent relationships where we support one another. So in the cities, to the extent that we've helped to influence and sort of pioneer the localization movement, we have helped many people to join in groups with the goal of finding, you know, greater well-being for themselves and for the planet, and there from the cities, in deeply connecting to each other, there is that healing that I'm talking about, the very vital psychological healing. It's like, you know, reconstituting humanity. It's like what it is to be human. And that is that we do need one another. We are social animals, and we need to be looking at each other in the eye. We need to be physically connected. So the local there is fundamental. But then once you understand the vital importance of food and understand this is the building block of any kind of healthy life and economy, people in the cities are turning to the region around them to rebuild that reciprocal relationship between city and country. Now, many of the cities... <clears throat> are far too big, so we will be seeing a migration out of them. COVID has precipitated that. But this is, again, you know, which path are we going to support as we move forward? Are we going to go along with the propaganda from top down into mega cities, or are we going to help to support a movement in the opposite direction? 
So it's really vitalizing smaller towns and cities and always ensuring that those cities start taking responsibility for their waste, for their consumption, instead of shipping it off to China, where it comes back to haunt us in the form of fountains of plastic and climate change. Yeah, I, I, what you were saying before about food being a central part of rebuilding community, I mean, you've talked a lot about before about farmers' markets, and I've been involved for decades now with setting up community gardens and city farms and school gardens in urban centres, which do exactly what you said. It's that deep reconnection. And the stories that I that I have of, of change in in individuals and change in community is it's profound absolutely profound um but I did want to ask you about places so that's Australia but what about places like Seoul you you have a lot of work connection um sorry community connection with with people in um in Korea yeah and I've been there many times too and I I always am so confounded by the scale of the cities and what to do when you're confronted with that level of urbanization? Yeah. Well, I, actually, one of my favorite examples is actually from Seoul, you know, which in many ways is one of the most soulless cities in the world because they were driven off the land with the help of the US uh, to become high tech producers in this high rise, high tech world, as also in Japan. And, uh, and in, in Seoul, at the sort of edge of the city, but still in the city, there was a, a development that was going to come along and destroy the last bit of just a tiny park, a little hill with, you know, well, what would it have been? You know, just 100 metres across or something, you know, very small. But the community got together to protect this bit of land. And out of that grew more and more initiatives where they started turning to each other and they started developing an alternative school. They started connecting to each other to build more community-minded businesses. And by the time I met them, there were 20,000 people involved. And the way it operated, it was really so interesting because it was like this whole... Um, you know, part of the city on all along that edge where that initial development has started. And it sort of spread out so that even, you know, one street, you know, this business and that house might not be part of it, but the one next door might be so sort of fanned out so that even within, if you were to draw a line around the area, there'd be some people who didn't really belong to Songmisan was the name of the community, but at the core, you know, the whole thing, 20,000 people. And they started an alternative school and they were sending children out to learn about farming out in the countryside. And then I heard just a couple of years ago that now some of the community, that they set up their own school in the country and now some of the community are moving out there. So it's sort of a beautiful story of some of the city peeling off to go and live, you know, in a community closer to the land. And and that's what's happening anyway, you know, the, you know, like my friend who started the Global Eco Village Network, you know, that's how 
she herself started and and so a lot of a lot of people who have lived the city life and tasted that emptiness, they develop an appetite for this. It's quite a natural process. And I wouldn't worry at all about the future of humanity or the future of life on Earth if it weren't for the fact that the juggernaut global economy is still allowed to continue expanding. And I think, you know, whether that's creating COVID or potentially another world war or, you know, driving <clears throat> this mad way that our governments support going to Mars and deep sea to look for more minerals in the name of a Green New Deal, mm. in the name of more minerals for renewable technology, but to fuel the consumer culture and corporate expansion. And remember, the corporate expansion is still reducing the number of winners. Mm -hmm. So in America now, three men own more than half of the American population. Now that's the model that Sweden, Australia, all are following. One is gonna make sure that we have fewer and fewer winners and with this obscene, visible, injustice of wealth accumulation. Uh, we have more and more homeless people. You know, I, so I just think, unfortunately, that juggernaut could still destroy so much that I feel a sense of urgency. If it weren't for that, you know, I, I would say just, we just push the pause button on that. There'll be a natural mm -hmm. uh, evolution. Let's not call it evolution, but it, but it is a deep, instinctual need to reconnect because that's how we evolved. That's what made us human, connected in intergenerational groups, connected to nature. That, you know, that is the economy. That is what supports us. So we instinctively, we're going there. But that's why I feel we need also to raise awareness about the global juggernaut. Mm -hmm. and do what we're doing now, you know, sort of educational process so that we not only focus on building those local examples, but also... I think, you know, like it's both simultaneously, isn't it? We need to have uh, people that are doing this and sharing the story about that. So to explain that it is a, a beautiful alternative and to, to create invitations for people to come and have a look and see it and to share that. Otherwise, I think we it's a little bit nerve-wracking. Like a lot of people talk to me and say, oh, I'd like to do what you're doing, but I'd have to give up this or the education that my children are having or I'm worried about where I would live. And so we're, here where I live, I can have an opportunity to, to open it up and, and show people what life is like, a different way that's based on these principles, but at the same time trying to talk out loud. So unplugging but staying firmly plugged in simultaneously is what I'm trying yeah. to do. Yeah, well, you're staying firmly plugged in because you are plugged in, but other people need to also work on that process of getting plugged in and... and uh, Absolutely, that's what, what our work is all about, is encouraging us to be able to see that doing both of these things actually reinforce each other in a very meaningful way and that the work at the local level and the community building becomes even more meaningful when you realise 
how it fits into the bigger picture, and then sharing that as a way of putting a dent in the dominant direction. Uh, just even sharing that uh, information about those examples is important, but also understanding why this juggernaut is still continuing, why and how, you know, that's... Uh, well, I think that's a perfect way to maybe close our conversation today and leads directly into the topic for the next conversation, which is about what is that type of education or um, opportunities to see a different way? How can we become deeply activists in this space and um, and become leaders in this, you know, then and leaders in the full sense of the word, whichever, wherever you are to be stepping up and to be a leader in this space. So thank you, Helena. It's been lovely to talk with you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Sense Making in a Changing World, the third of our special four-part series celebrating and exploring localization with Helena Norberg Hodge of Local Futures. Remember, you can find loads of links in the show notes below. And come back next week for our final part of this four-part series exploring big picture activism, acting locally and globally simultaneously, and talking about where do we go from here.